Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us on this episode of our show. And I think it's going to be a very interesting one because we have as our special guest, Julian Williams, uh, who is the former uh, junior middleweight champion of the world. Not only is he a terrific fighter, he is a very, very interesting young man uh, who uh, has many, many diverse interests, even beyond the sport of boxing. But we will certainly talk to him about his boxing career, uh, both past, present, and future, uh, and get his thoughts. We are also going to take a lot of your questions. Uh, when you guys send questions in on Twitter to me, at Al Bernstein, uh, we often have a number of them that we can't get to. So I'm going to do as many as is humanly possible uh, on this uh, show, and uh, we'll see if we can get to as many as we can. Uh, to help me do that and more, uh, my pal uh, and co-host, Mr. Trip Mitchell. Trip, how are you? I am great, and I am so impressed. Uh, this is Radio 101. Be nice to your listeners, but we get great questions from your Twitter followers. It's really darn impressive. They are. You know, that's it, a really good point. The questions are interesting. They're varied. Uh, I mean, the ones we're going to deal with today, they, some are historical, some are about current day boxing, some are about dream matchups, some are about individuals, and they always find some interesting little unique twists. Uh, and one of the questions today uh, is one in which you're going to learn about somebody that I'll, I'd be willing to bet you don't know about. Uh, and that is the question. In doing research for the show, when it, you send me the questions, I looked this gentleman up and this might be the most amazing boxing video I've ever seen. So uh, is that a good foreshadowing? Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going we're gonna to get to that one in a little bit. Um, and uh, uh, we've got a little bit of uh, current boxing talk uh, first, don't we? We sure do. And, uh, you know, we're in a situation where all of a sudden boxing has started and some, there've been some fights that are, are, making some news and some pretty big stories coming already in the first month of boxing being back. There are, you know, we saw this past week, uh, uh, Miguel Burchelt, the WBC super featherweight champion, uh, defend his title, um, uh, and do so very convincingly. Uh, he is one of the most exciting fighters in the sport. Uh, he's 38 and one, uh, with his record, 33 KOs in the 38 wins. So he is uh, a very talented 28 year old, who was ticketed before the pandemic hit to take on Oscar Valdez. And Oscar Valdez, of course, uh, the former featherweight champion, uh, a, 27, a 29-year-old with a 27-0 and 0 record who had a terrific fight in 2018 with Scott Quigg in which he uh, defended his title. And uh, it was a great fight, but he got his jaw broken in that fight and had to spend a, a long time rehabbing. He since had three fights. Um, the last one was again against Adam Lopez, uh, in which he, he struggled a little bit. Uh, and, uh, but he ultimately got the win. He's training with Eddie Reynoso right now, uh, the trainer of Canelo Alvarez. And uh, this is a, a matchup that now uh, is back on the boards. Uh, after Burchelt defended his title, um, their top-ranked boxing that promotes both of them is now actively working to create that match, perhaps for later this year. Uh, and I think all boxing fans want to see it. It, it is, it has, it's one of those fights that has the makings of a, just a terrific matchup. Burchelt, a real slugger, a very, very active fighter. Valdez likes to get in the trenches and, and bang away, but he's a little more effective when he acts as the boxer puncher, which he has been trying to do now working with uh, Eddie Reynoso. And so he, with this three-fight winning streak, albeit one in which he was tested by Adam Lopez, he's hoping it gives him momentum coming in against Burchelt. But that is a fight that, you know, when boxing fans think of fights that could happen uh, in the near future, that's one that I think is is very high on the list. I am really looking forward to it. And um, Burchell kind of helped set up the 
fight with his uh, title defense. Now, you referenced so, questions before. Well, real quick, before we get to the questions, you just mentioned something, a fighter coming back from a broken jaw. Is that an injury front for a boxer? Is that about as bad as it gets? Well, yeah, because part of it is it, you have a long period of, obviously, of uh, recuperation, and it kind of puts you on hold, uh, obviously. Um, uh, many fighters have come back from broken jaws of uh, uh, you know, Ali famously and his, what his second fight with Kenny Norton had his jaw broken in like the third round fought through to the end of that fight. And uh, his recovery time, not surprisingly, Ali was astonishingly resilient. Uh, his recovery time wasn't that long. Uh, but many fighters have had broken jaws and, and come back, but it's a daunting injury to be sure. And it took uh, Valdez quite a while to recover. And then they matched him pretty soft when he came back, although Adam Lopez is a pretty good fighter, and we saw him even fight after in this post-pandemic period. So, yeah, the, 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 uh, it's a serious injury. There's no question about that, but one that boxers can recover from. Okay, and thank God sportscasters don't have many broken jaws because we'd be in trouble. No, not too many, although we're not sure. What, Barry told a story about Larry Merchant and uh, Don Dunphy almost getting into a fight, so we could have had a broken jaw there, but we didn't. My father-in-law figured out how old Dumphy was in that situation and got a big kick out of it. Yeah, he he did the math, and Dumphy was not a, early in his career when that happened. That's a great story. He was, he was, and of course, we think of Merchant as older because we know him older now, but he was much younger, the much younger man uh, at that time. So, uh, uh, and, and that story, by the way, was one that resonated on uh, social media. I got more tweets and more comments on that than than uh, almost anything in that show. And by the way, I have to say that, that, that our last episode with Barry Tompkins, that was actually one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done in all these years with anybody. I just, it was so wow. enjoyable. That, that, and it was so much fun to watch. And you guys clearly have so much like and respect for each other, but he is a fountain of great stories. He is, I, you know, that, yes. And, uh, and he's such a good storyteller. And uh, so charming. So it's, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Okay, great. Our first question from Patriot Q. Is it time to ban Big Baby from the sport of boxing once and for all? Yeah, Big Baby Miller, who was uh, tested positive again for a banned substance. This is the third time, twice in boxing and once in kickboxing. And uh, was going to fight on a top-ranked card. They are now promoting him. And now he is... Uh, he can't have that fight and the Nevada Athletic Commission will have to adjudicate what punishment he should get. Many are calling for him to be banned from the sport completely uh, because of the number of times that he has, has tested positive. Uh, you have to believe that a lengthy, and I mean lengthy suspension would be in order at the very least. Third time that he has uh, tested positive for these banned substances, and you know you reach uh, you reach the breaking point where you say to yourself, "How many times chances are you going to give somebody?" Uh, so I, I personally think, at the very least, a two-year suspension if they can go that high. Uh, and then uh, you know, I, if somebody told me that he was going to be, uh, I doubt that you could ban him from the sport completely at this juncture though you can make a case for that, but certainly a long, long suspension. So if a fighter has a Nevada suspension, do pretty much the other commissions around the country respect that? Yeah, they will, they will respect the, uh, uh, there's a federation of, uh, of um, boxing commissions in the United States and they will respect it and he would uh, not be able to fight in the United States. Okay, good question. Uh, Victor Lopez, what fight at 168 would you be most excited to see in the near future? And who do you think is the top super middleweight fighter? That division in over the last 10 or 12 or 15 years keeps reinventing itself in a good way. Um, and, you know, going all the way back to the days of Joe Calzaghe and then uh, Andre Ward, both, the, you know, uh, and, and all the way up through the current time, uh, we've had some really good 168 pounders. And right now there are a number of good uh, fighters in that, uh, in that weight class. Um, for one thing, 
There's young David Benavides, who's going to fight in uh, August, and he has a championship. He's a WBC uh, champion, a uh, very action fighter who's a lot of fun to watch. Um, uh, Canelo Alvarez still has a little piece of that, of one of the WBC titles because of his time at, uh, at, 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 uh, at that weight class. And, and Canelo, while he is middleweight slash 168 pounder, of course, is is a player in that division. Callum Smith from England um, uh, with the WBA is a terrific fighter. Caleb Plant, young man who surprised everyone by beating um, Jose Uscadegui to win the title and has performed well after that, uh, is an excellent fighter. He's got the IBF title. And then Billy Joe Saunders, the enigmatic Billy Joe Saunders with the WBO title, one never knows when he's going to actually get in the ring or whether something will stop him from getting in the ring, but he also is in the, in the mix. Of all, when you throw all those names in the hopper, if you, if you forced me to say what one fight would be interesting to me, the one fight, and I don't know that it's likely to happen, but we're dealing in what you know, is interesting, I would love to see David Benavides and Canelo Alvarez. I, I just think that would be a fascinating fight because Benavides has defensive issues, but is a offensive machine. Canelo is, of course, a terrifically skilled fighter who takes his time in fights and sets things up. And would the pressure of Benavides and would him pushing the pace, especially in later in fights, how would that be against Canelo? So that's if I had to pick a fight, the other one that would be fascinating is Benavides against Caleb Plant, uh, who's a young man. I think we're all curious how good is Caleb Plant. You know, he won his title. He's won since. But uh, he's a very slick boxer. And how good is this young man? Uh, so we'd like to find out uh, with him against Benavides as well. Uh, and a quick question from me. What's your favorite weight class? Because I love 168 because you've got the speed, you've got the art, but at 168, you got power. Yeah, I, that's a good weight. It's a great weight. That one, and I'll tell you the other weight, people laugh at me sometimes when I say it. I love the cruiserweight division because some of the reasons you suggested, you know, you have the, the, the they're, they're the old time heavyweights, you know, 200 is the limit. So you have power, but you still have men that are in good shape, have to make a weight so they can't be, you know, uh, ad, way ad nauseum to the top of the list. Uh, and I like that weight class. And in fact, the cruiserweight division, uh, though these fights don't often get as much notoriety as they should, uh, often creates uh, the best fights. Fantastic. And then uh, one more question before we go to our, our interview from Darren O'Hare. How many fights did you broadcast on radio? Hmm. Funny, it's interesting. You know, I grew up uh, listening to fights on radio. I'll never forget uh, my first, probably the first fight I ever listened to maybe was the first uh, Liston Patter or Johansson fight, like the late 50s, uh, mid to late 50s. I was like an eight-year-old kid or something. Nine, and, I, and I had this transistor radio, you know, pushed to my ear, laying in bed. My parents didn't know I was up. I wasn't supposed to be up. And I'm listening to... Um, that fight get announced on the radio. So radio is a place where boxing can be very dramatic. I have done two cards on radio. Um, one of them was the first Bernard Hopkins, Roy Jones Jr. fight, which Roy Jones Jr. won that fight. Uh, and that was intriguing. And it was a, an interesting fight to do. And then the second uh, was uh, a fight I did with Jim Rome, of all people. Jim Rome was doing the play-by-play, -play, and I was doing the, uh, uh, the color on it. It was in Palm Springs. And uh, I, I wanted to say uh, Meldrick, it, it was, um, Meldrick Taylor was fighting, and I can't remember the uh, opponent. But it was, uh, it, was, it was interesting, and I loved doing it, you know. And in radio, there's even more of a premium on for your color commentator you just have to jump in with a quick comment because clearly people aren't seeing what's happening. So they rely on the play-by-play -play man to tell them what's happening. So if you're a color commentator and you're talkative, uh, while I don't think it's a good idea on TV either, it's really a bad idea on radio. So you, to, you know, get in and get out as quickly as possible. But it was fun doing those two fights on radio. I really loved it. It was kind of like a, a throwback. I am a radio historian anyway. I... I am absolutely taken 
with the history of radio. This is probably sad to admit. I, I actually listened to the old time radio broadcasts, the dramas that were on the radio. I find them fascinating. And I find the history of sports on radio really interesting. So it was fun to kind of step back to another time and do two fights on radio. So that was a lot of fun. Um, now we're gonna have more questions for you uh, after our interview, but we want to get to uh, this part of our, our show. Uh, it was uh, very, very special to me to do, to announce the first, the, the fight between uh, our guest tonight, Julian Williams and Jared Hurd. Uh, both of whom I, I think are wonderful young men and terrific fighters and action fighters. And uh, Williams was trying to take away uh, the title of Jared Hurd at that time. And Jared was, uh, you know, one of the most exciting fighters in the sport. They produced a spectacular fight that we were privileged to do on Showtime. And, uh, uh, and it was really, uh, really, really great. And I had done couple of previous fights, uh, like his fight with uh, Gallimore, uh, Julian Williams fights with Gallimore, which was a very good fight. Uh, and so I had some experience with Julian Williams. And then that fight, of course, was uh, very special. I also announced the fight that didn't go so well for him uh, before that against uh, Jamal Charlo, in which he tried to win uh, uh, a title. And, uh, and that didn't work out well for him. Uh, he fought very well for four and a half rounds and then got hit with a monstrous uppercut, got knocked out. Um, so uh, I had enjoyed announcing Junior Williams' fights, and now I enjoy uh, watching him uh, on Twitter and uh, interviews, et cetera. And so I wanted to get him on the show. And here is our conversation with J-Rock, Julian Williams. We're now joined by J-Rock Williams, Julian Williams, the uh, former junior middleweight champion of the world, uh, a fantastic boxer, and a very interesting man, which is why we wanted to have him on the show. Julian, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, this is, uh, this is uh, fun for me because I was privileged to, uh, to get to announce um, uh, several of your fights, and uh, and oh, you are always an entertaining boxer, and I we always enjoyed interviewing you before the fight. So I knew it would be fun to yeah. chat with you. Um, I wanted to give people a little bit of an idea if they don't know about you. Um, you have uh, done some extraordinary things in your life, not the least of which is conquering a very very difficult childhood in which you were essentially. Uh, parentless and had to spend a good portion of your your childhood in Philadelphia in a in a shelter and you did not have the best of circumstances how much uh, resilience and um, uh, resolve did it take to get past that time you know what man it's hard for me to say now because I'm past it but like I, I tell people all the time I probably, you probably heard me say this before, but it's not like um, the, the things I was going through is not necessarily abnormal coming from where I come from. Right. So I might go to, you might go to school and, you know, you might be in a classroom with, with 30 kids and 10 of them are going through the same thing. So um, you don't really know how tough you have to be, how tough you are until you have to be that tough. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's, 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 uh, I could sit up here and say, well, I had to do so much and it was so mm -hmm. hard, you know what I mean? And make myself seem more special than what I really am. But when you really don't have a choice to, to, to go through things, you just go through it. You grow through what you go through. And that's exactly what I did. And you're pointing out that one of the things that it, in a way may have helped you a little bit is it was somewhat normalized because some of the kids you were with were going through similar things. So, and some of them were possibly even worse. Worse, you know what yeah. I mean? But uh, I mean, how did I how did I come out of it and make it to where I made it to? I just had a goal and I had a vision. You know what I mean? Even as a even as a little boy, I'd always envision on the things that I wanted. I always envisioned how I wanted to live. You know, I always envisioned I wanted to be a champion and be financially stable. And 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 to be honest, I wanted to be rich. You know what I mean? And I, and I figured that boxing. <laughs> <laughs> and I figured that boxing would be the quickest way to get there. So 
I uh, I, I got to working. The um, uh, the man that has helped you so much, uh, Stephen Breadman Edwards, who's your trainer. How much of an influence has he been generally on your life uh, beyond boxing? Uh, he's been a big influence, you know, because uh, he basically, you know, laid the groundwork on, on you know, how to work hard and, you know, and, you know, doing the right thing and, you know what I mean, and uh, not cutting no corners and stuff like that and stuff that my former trainer instilled in me as well. But Stephen Edwards just took it to another level. And he just helped me out so much with uh with God, my career from the beginning. And uh, it's worked out good, man. It's been a successful relationship. Yeah, he's a, a great guy. Like you, he's very interesting. And uh, like you, is one of the great Twitter followers, uh, Twitter uh, mm -hmm. handles to follow. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, you were, of course, able as a, as a boxer to reach that goal that every boxer has to become a world champion. Uh, and uh, that was in 2019. I remember calling that fight when you fought Jared Hurd in what was mm -hmm. one of the most exciting fights uh, of that year or any year. It was brilliantly fought by both of you and you mm -hmm. emerged victorious. Um, that had to be uh, an amazing feeling for you. Uh, I would say Other than having my two daughters, this probably was the best yeah. feeling I ever felt. That's a, that's a good way to put it. I can't think of no other feeling that felt better than that. Pretty amazing. And that fight was, that match was hardly easy. Uh, Jared Hurd is a handful. Uh, and at oh, that time, especially fight. was, you know, junior middleweight champion of the world. And he was is as resilient and rough a fighter as there could be. One of the things that you did in that fight that was pretty amazing was you were able to get, you know, one of the things about him is he he's a hard puncher and his work rate is relentless. And you were able to match both of those things and stand up to his power as well. Right. Uh, yeah, man, Jared Hurd, man, he's a, he's, a, uh, he's a hell of a fighter. He throws a lot of punches. He's like a, a big body. You know what I mean? Like, yes, very uh, big uh, junior middleweight. Yeah, he's, he's a big body. But uh, he had a lot of deficiencies and a lot of holes that I thought I could exploit. And uh, I, I thought I did that. But with that being said, he's still for the – it was a tough fight. Like, to the last bell, he tried to win. Yeah. I always say it's extremely hard for a man to come out round after round after round and keep trying to win when he's being dominated. And that's why I got so much respect for him because he didn't give in. You know, 80% of the fighters that uh that get dominated like that, they'll just give in and just pack it in. And just not necessarily get knocked out, but just, like, try not to get knocked out and fight to survive. And he fought to win all the way through. So I got mad respect for uh, Jared. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And, uh, and you did win a unanimous decision and did control uh, – <laughs> the vast majority of the action, but it was extremely exciting and, and a great fight. Now, you weren't able to, you, you know, your, your reign didn't last long because you lost to Jason Rosario, but, uh, and I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, whether, about the possible rematch with him. That right. fight was, was interesting because, of, you know, it was a homecoming for you. And it was yeah. at a time when boxers kept losing their homecomings. Uh, right, and, right. and unfortunately that happened to you. Yeah, man, uh, it was definitely unfortunate, you know. But boxing, man, it could be it, it could be a weird sport, man. Sometimes, and uh, it's something for me. It's been like a roller coaster, you know. What yeah. I mean? Uh, but you just gotta take the good with the bad, you know. what I mean, I didn't do no complaining, you know. What I mean, he had a good night on me, you know. What I mean, just like I had a good night on Jared Hurd. He didn't do no complaining. I didn't do no complaining. And uh, Jason Rosell should be proud of himself. He fought a good fight. Um, now, there's been a lot, of course, we've, in the intervening, that was in January, in the intervening times, obviously, we've had the pandemic and, and boxing has ceased, though now it's, it's edging its way back in with matches that have been held. Uh, what do you, do you anticipate trying to get a rematch with him? Um, I believe you had a, a, a rematch clause. Uh, I did. I did have a clause, but instead of going to a direct, uh, uh, a direct rematch, an immediate rematch, rather, 
I decided to get the, the scar tissue on my face cleared up because that was one of the factors. I got cut in the fight really, really early. Okay. I think it was like the second round. And it's it's a it's a cut that been bothering me over the past three or four years. I actually got scar tissue on the both eyes. Oh, okay. So I said you know, I wanted I wanted to play it smart and go get the surgery done because I don't plan on I plan on at least being in Boston until I'm 35. I just turned 30 in April. So you know what I mean I probably should have got it done uh, after the Jared Hurt fight, but I ended up getting another surgery. I just think right. over the years, over the years, you know. I've been fighting since I was 12 years old. Yeah. And I've never I've never had a surgery. I never had broken any bones. You know, I think I ruined my hands a little bit. Like I had the cap some I pushed the cast back on my knuckles a few times. But other than that, I never really had any surgery. So I think over the course of time, like the body starts to get a little bit wearing tear. So I wanted to start clearing some of that up before I jump back right back in, you know, and uh, take a rematch. So you did you, have you had the surgery already? Yes, I had it. Yeah. Okay, so you're you're in the process of healing. When you and and what you're saying is that rematch may or may not be available right when you come back, so you may have to fight a different fight. I have a I have a I have a direct road back to to, to okay. get my titles back. So I'm. So uh, when you're healed up, we it, it's con very conceivable you could be rematching with Rosario. I'm gonna be rematching with whoever whoever. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be fighting the world champion to okay. get my titles back when I'm ready. All right, yeah, whoever that may be, right? Yeah, whoever it may be. All right, and I'm sure you like. Uh, what do you What do you think's the timetable? What have they told you about the, what's the proper amount for you to let that heal? Well, they told me between four to six months, and I got it done February 28th. Okay, but they told me four to six months before I can even start sparring in the gym. But just so happened, the pandemic hit right after. So, I mean, it's affecting me because it's affecting the world. But as far as my boxing career, right, it's not really affecting me because I was going to be down anyway. But uh, right. I'm just, okay. I'm just healing. Yeah. So, so, yep. so, so this time off would have happened for you in any case, as you point out, the you yep. know, bigger ramifications, but still. Um, you you are um, well. We're all look forward to seeing you back in the ring. That's for sure. When it's appropriate for you and when it's healthy, because you've been one of the most exciting fighters in the last five or six years in the sport. Uh, mm -hmm. You're you're also. Uh, I think you are one of the best Twitter people to follow. You're one of the best Twitter followers follows um, that you. is there. And part of the reason why you're interesting to follow is because. You talk about everything, which I like, because I like to do that on Twitter, too. Uh, you talk mm -hmm. about movies. You talk about uh, uh, pop culture. You talk about boxing, for sure. Right. You talk about social justice. You talk about a lot of things. When you got on Twitter, was it a conscious effort on your part to kind of just talk about everything and uh, kind of give people an idea of who you are? Yeah, you know what? When I got on Twitter, I didn't really take to it that much at first because I'm more But I think uh, with Twitter, uh, it's hard to say. I wanted to like let people know that people think that we that we athletes and we and we and we fighters that we, that's all we can do. That's all we can yeah, talk right. about. You know what I mean? So I kind of like it's it's more boxing is my life, but it's other things outside of boxing that I take an interest to. You know what I mean? And some things that I talk about, I don't necessarily take interest to, like politics. I'm not interested in politics, but some things just slap you dead in your face and you have to talk about them. Right. Because quite frankly, I don't I don't I don't like a lot of things. So I just uh express myself on Twitter and I try to like, you know, not offend nobody, but sometimes sometimes the truth offends people. Well at least what I think is the truth. Right. What I feel like is the truth at the time may offend some people, but it's never my that's never my intent. Well, you feel the need to, to to be a citizen as well as a as a, a boxer. I saw you know I saw one of your recent tweets is a movie that I want to see uh, that's on Netflix, the Spike Lee movie, uh, the five the five bloods or something right. like that. Right, you gave it a big review, didn't you? That's an amazing movie. That's probably one of the best movies I've seen within the last I'm gonna say five years. Wow. And I'm a movie watcher. I go, I go to the movies. I yeah. watch a lot of movies. That's a great movie. Spike Lee did a great job. I love, you know, he's uh, probably an underrated director. When you look at all his, I mean, I don't know if he's underrated. But I think most people understand he's very talented. But 
but but yeah, his body of work is amazing. We just watched, uh, we revisited uh, Malcolm X, which- Amazing had, movie. Yeah, wonderful movie, phenomenal movie. I mean, it's a yep. brilliant epic. And I had seen it, you know, before, and but I hadn't watched it in a good six or seven years. And interestingly, my wife had never seen it. And uh, we revisited wow. it, and it was miraculous, wasn't it? Yes, it was a great movie. Uh, uh, Denzel Washington did a really good job. He was astonishing, yeah, as if he would do anything else, right? Uh, I mean, he, right, was pretty, right. he was pretty amazing. Speaking of classic performers and people that uh, have given us great performances, you are a real boxing fan, and you like the history of the sport as well, uh, and you often refer to uh, fighters from the past, but I don't think I've, in any of our interviews with you, I've ever really asked you about who your favorites are. Who are some of the, the boxers that really made a huge impact on you? Okay, so I have, I don't, I never had one specific favorite yeah, fighter. Yeah, there's usually a bunch, right? I have like a, yeah, I had like a bunch of fighters that I really took a liking to. So right now, I like Juan Estrada. Ah, uh, yeah. He's one of my, he's probably my, my favorite fighter right now as we, sp as we speak. Uh, I'm a huge Guillermo Rigondeaux fan. A lot yeah. of people, uh, he turned he turned a lot of people off. But in his prime, that man was he was a bad man. Um, I was a big growing up. I was a really really huge Bernard Hopkins fan because mainly because he was from Philadelphia, and I would see him around the gyms. And when I was a, a 14, 15 year old kid, I could see him in the gym, and I could see him on HBO. You know, cursing out Larry Merchant. It lets me know that you know you can make it coming from where I come from. So. I liked him for for boxing reasons and for motivational reasons. Uh, Muhammad Ali is the to me is the greatest fighter to ever live. Not just for boxing, but for the the things he did outside of the ring with the civil rights movement and stuff like that, and being so outspoken and you know just standing up for his people. He's just an amazing, just an amazing human being, amazing person. The best, just all around boxer, just boxer, has to be Sugar Robinson. Yeah. Sugar Robinson was a, is an amazing fighter. Can fight any time. I got so many I can go on for that. I got yeah, so many no, fighters. That's, that's, a pretty, for that's, a, that's a pretty good list and for a variety yeah. of reasons. And uh, you, yeah. went, you spanned the decades going back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is, which is, yeah. Which is pretty good. Um, you, you, uh, you uh, one of the, the tweets you sent recently had an interesting um, – uh, comment in it. It was like, and it was funny too. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna read part of it. You 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 commented on the the fact that there's probably too much emphasis the uh, these days. Or somebody had written a story, a news story, saying that there was too much emphasis on uh, the undefeated records. That undefeated records right. seem to denote you know perfection or whatever. And you made your your tweet was you said some strikingly handsome kid from Philly was saying the exact same thing <laughs> last year. And I'm guessing I know who that strikingly handsome kid from Philly was. <laughs> um, and, right. and, and you are, it is something in boxing that I think we, the sport is kind of learning from mixed martial arts and from, from UFC and, and Bellator, that an undefeated record is not the ultimate, you know, it never has been in the sport in the old days and it shouldn't be now. I agree. I don't think – I honestly don't think boxing is learning from MMA and mixed martial arts. I think they're being reminded because pre-Mayweather era, it wasn't like this. Yeah. You know, I look at – I forget who boxer I was just looking at the other day. Oh, Kid Gavilon. And I was looking at Kid Gavilon's record. I think he was like 103 in like 16 or 108 in like 16, right? And I'm looking at his record because my co-trainer, Asim Bea, we were uh, having a discussion about uh, about a fighter from Philadelphia that had two two of the same names. It was Dick Turner and it was uh, it was Dick Turner and someone else. But we thought that we came up with Dick Turner in the gym. We thought that he fought Kid Gavilon, but it was another it was another Turner that kind of like from Philadelphia that that actually fought Kid Gavilon. So we mm -hmm. looked up his record, and I'm saying to myself like, wow. This dude is an all-time great from Cuba. Uh, he's such a great fighter, and he has 16 losses. 
if he has, if you get 16 losses in this day today's era, you you consider a journeyman. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's amazing. Uh, it's just boxing is just so much different back then than it is now. And I'm not saying that you know losing is fine because losing is never okay. I don't. Nobody wants to lose. I want to win every time if I can. And I train to win every single time. But uh, it should never be a deficit to a career. But yeah, we got today. Yeah. We got social. We when you got social media and you know you got the social media trolls and. It can, it can ruin a fighter's confidence. Yeah, the other problem, too, is it, all of what you said is certainly accurate. And the other problem is fighters don't fight as much as they did before. So one loss gets magnified. If, let's say if you fight two times a year, one of them is a loss, even if the other one was some phenomenal win. But, you know, we don't – Kid Gavlin had 16 losses because and he fought 100 and some times. So yep. that's part of the issue. But you're right, social media – and this this idea that somehow that uh, less than a perfect record becomes some mark against you, which is um, but I, I think is I think is ruining everything because fighters are not willing to risk fighting tough fights anymore. Yeah, it's a good point. To be great, so it ruins everything to the championship level down to the prospect level because if you get a loss, promoters don't want to talk to you. The 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 uh the networks don't want you on. The uh the reporters stop uh uh doing interviews. Everything stops. You know what I mean? Until you get to a certain level, of course. So it's it makes the prospects not want to test themselves. You know what I mean? Really good point. If a prospect don't test themselves. If a prospect doesn't test himself, how's he gonna get prepared for the championship level? Right. Everybody don't have Al Heyman or Oscar De La Hoya behind them, or uh Bob Arum. I was just fortunate enough to have someone great like Al Heyman who, you know, will move me the right way and stuff like that. I got to get the right fights. I've been on Showtime since I was uh, 10 and 0. It was the first time I was on, sh on Show Extreme. So everybody don't have that. The kid last night, uh, Franco, I didn't watch the whole fight because I fell asleep, but I watched about four or five rounds of it. He won the title. This kid got two draws. He got stopped before. Yeah, and yet you – know and yeah, and then yeah. he got the opportunity so, to win a title, and he did. Yep, yep. So just because you win, just because you lose, that doesn't mean you can't win. Just because you win, that doesn't mean you can't lose. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Um, I'll just keep you for a minute or two more. Um, but I wanted to you – you had a very intriguing – again, I'll go back to one of your tweets because it's a great, it's a great way that you communicate with, with everyone. You talked about the fact that you said, if I had a job, you were talking about the fact that in this time we're living in, um, and it, there are turbulent times, and, uh, and we're – the country, hopefully, is reprioritizing in uh, how it feels about things like uh, behavior of police, uh, racism in general, and many, many different uh, – parts of social justice. And you made right. a very interesting point that I have not really heard somebody else make. And that is, you, you were talking about how people at the workplace uh, are having some yeah. pretty interesting water cooler conversations these days. And some of them might not be uh, totally amiable. Uh, and you made the point that you don't go to, a, right. like I don't go to an office myself and go to a job, right, right. you don't do that. You said if I right. did have a job, I probably wouldn't have a job. <laughs> um, it's an interesting <laughs> question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. What was what was the actual question? Because well, the question is, I guess basically, you were pointing out that you know these people are having fascinating conversations, and some of them are all not always easy conversations. Are these conversations we need to have at this point? I think I think we're past the conversation. I think uh, yeah, I, that's a good that's a good way to put it. The people, the people, the, we've been having conversation for four hundred years. The people in charge Very know what's right, and then and they know what's wrong. Yeah. So I'm I I don't want to have I don't really want to have conversations anymore. That's just me. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean this country is you know is is. is it's not, it's not in a good place right now. It's never really been in a good place, but I think now 
within the town in the town we're in, you know, you get to see it's not just police brutality. It's so many different forms of systemic racism, you know, from 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 that's from down the line, from from literally from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that's still in effect today. Like uh, I think some some guy that I follow on social on Instagram, he put a video up about defunding the police department, and it, that hardly mean like taking money from the police department. And he was saying that, that could fix the problem. Now I agree with everything he said. But that's just not the it's not that's not the only problem. That's just one that's just one problem. Now, what I said to him was, and it wasn't an argument, it was just a comment. Right. He's uh he's at a really good page and uh he's uh he's he's very insightful. So what I said to him was, so if we're going you just can't start there. So we all we all we understand that poverty plus poverty equals crime rate. When you, when you when you when you when you when you put people in poverty in poverty, crime rate goes up. Now, I understand that the prison system is the billion dollar industry. So, when you when you mix when you put poverty put people in poverty and the crime rate goes up, people go to jail. If like it's it's like a it's like a it's like an order almost. You know what I mean? So, if they're making billions and billions of dollars off people going to jail, it's it's actually the plan is working how the powers that be wanted to work. So why would they change it? And many of the jails are privatized now, which speaks to your point Absol about uh, people making money off, off Absolutely. imprisonment. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is Absolutely. Uh, another issue. So I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make, though. So it's, it's so many different issues, and we're only talking about this one issue. So if America want to change, America has to start from the literally the ground up and build the whole infrastructure over or change the whole infrastructure because it's it's like a it's like a board game right now if you ask me it's working exactly how the powers that be wanted to work it's just yeah well and it's a systemic when people talk about being a systemic problem that's you just described it yeah. accurately it's a systemic issue and and fixing one issue doesn't fix um doesn't fix everything. Hopefully, uh, I mean, I saw, I think it was Cory Booker the other day and uh, talking about the fact that people are advocating for, uh, speaks to the point you made, uh, talking about commissions. And he said, we're past the point of commissions. We've had many commissions. Right. Um, we, right. We, we, we've studied right. the problem. We need, we need action. So, right. We know that everybody knows the problem. Everybody yeah. knows the problem. We want to talk about the solution and, and get to working on a solution. I'm tired of talking. Hopefully that will hopefully that will happen and uh, and in short order that's for sure. Um, this has been a delight to chat with you. I'm glad we got a chance to visit and I wanted people to see you, uh, hear you. Not everybody gets to hear you all the time and uh, understand right. you're an interesting uh, man. And uh, not only are you an exciting fighter, but you're an intriguing guy as well. Thank you. I appreciate you. All right, Julian, really good to talk to you, and good luck in your comeback. Uh, we're all anxious to see you fight real soon. We know that uh, you got to be healthy when you fight, and hopefully that um, recovery yeah. will go well. It's going well. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'll be uh, two-time champion again real soon. All right. Hey, take care, Julian. Thanks again. Yeah, you do the same. Yeah, thanks. So that was our talk with Julian Williams, uh, in which not only did we get a chance to visit with him about his, uh, his past and his career, but also got an update, a news update from him on uh, his return, that he is uh, recovering from the surgery that he had uh, and isn't likely to be ready uh, to even spar for a little while. So I think uh, chances of maybe us seeing him return late, late in this year is about the what we can hope for. So um, the pandemic kind of helped him trip because it, in a certain way, of course, it didn't help. It didn't help anybody. But it, 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 from his career standpoint, by having that enforced layoff, it was part of the time when he would be laying off anyway. Well, he, and he seems like the fighter who's going to stay in great shape, irrespective of the fact that he's not going to be. Um, doing any sparring. He's one of those guys. Andre Ward, earlier in this show's history, talked about there are certain fighters who stay in shape even when they're not fighting. 
Absolutely. And you're right. He is exactly the kind of person that would have the, the discipline and the wherewithal uh, to do that. And so I don't think it's going to be too hard for him once he is able to work out and spar um, to be able to do that. Well, we promised you all uh, question, more questions that I will answer. Uh, and uh, Tripp, I believe we have some more, don't we? We do. Coming from Steve Evanson. And Al, did you grow up wanting to be a reporter? What was your childhood dream job? And when did you know that boxing was going to be your career choice? Yeah, I did want to be a, a sports reporter. That was all I wanted to be. I, I never had one moment in life where I wanted to be anything else. Uh, and I will never forget, uh, I was on the high school newspaper and Bobby Hall, the great uh, hockey player, I grew up in Chicago, came to uh, our school and I got to interview him. I only like three or four questions, but it, I'll never forget when I did that. I thought, well, this is the greatest thing ever, right? What could possibly exceed this um, for a way to make a living and, uh, and, and uh, you know, fulfill your life? Um, and, um, and so I, ironically, my career actually went toward hard news. I became, uh, when I got out of college, I couldn't get a job as a sports writer in Chicago. I could only get jobs in hard news. And so I became, I, I worked at Learner Newspapers in Chicago, matriculated my way up to be managing editor. Uh, and the further and further I went up the, the, the chain in that, in the newspaper world, uh, I got farther and farther away from sports and I made a huge mistake by breaking a story, <laughs> uh, an investigative story that won an, an, a journalistic award in Chicago, this stick a type award that nobody at Learner Newspaper had ever won before. So of course I got pushed farther and farther into, uh, into being, they gave me a, a, a you know, a, a better position and I kept getting farther and farther away from sports. Then I started, uh, you know, I kept, trying to get into sports by freelancing with different organizations and uh, ultimately uh, did do a lot of freelancing. And that led to me writing for Ring Magazine and KO Magazine and Boxing Illustrated. And that was how I kind of parlayed that into sneaking, that and writing a book on boxing, sneaking my way into ESPN. So um, sports reporting was always the thing for me. And boxing was the, became what I knew I was going to get into once I wrote the book on it. And once I started writing for all those boxing magazines, and then of course, when I clawed my way in to get on a couple of ESPN shows and they were very much in the embryonic stages, just going into maybe 3 million homes. And uh, once that happened, I knew that, you know, the bulk of my broadcasting was going to be in boxing. Was your first show on tape or was it live when you went to TV? Live. And uh, in fact, we dealt with that last week, right? Jamie Olatundi and David Bradley. Uh, it was a live show and I kind of stepped in uh, in the middle of the show to do, to do the fight. With, uh, I was there helping them and they kind of brought me in. Um, so that was, that was exciting. Do you ever get nervous? Uh, you know, that's a funny question. I'll tell you, I get nervous... Um, live performing. Uh, I get nervous in front of crowds. Uh, I don't get nervous on television. Uh, I, I mean, I think like everyone, you have moments of, a few moments of anxiety to make sure that, you know, you're, you're up for the moment. But I never have felt that very much. Uh, and maybe it's just because the camera is there and you're talking just to the camera. You're not looking at faces and there's not that immediacy. There is an immediacy because you're live to you know, maybe millions of people. But I don't look at it that way. I look like I'm talking into the camera and talking to one person. So uh, I try to make it feel like a conversation. Yeah. And have you ever worked with someone who's just panicked and do you have to talk them off the ledge? Oh, yeah. I, oh, I definitely. Uh, I mean, there was a, uh, I won't even mention his name, but somebody <laughs> literally, well-known person, started in our open and froze, literally froze. <laughs> and I had to, he grabbed my arm. And he couldn't think of a name. I think it was Rocky Marciano or something. And I, I said the name. He said, thank you. <laughs> it's like, it was like, you know, 10 seconds of complete dead air. Uh, and uh, so that was, that was a little bit, you know, and I'm not, and I have had my uh, moments. I had a moment I was doing um, uh, a, a, a uh, I had something similar happen, but not to that degree, where I was doing a, a show on Showtime, uh, 
it was uh, an, a strike force show, so it was mixed martial arts. And Stephen Quadros, who's called the fight professor, uh, I, I was introducing him and I said, and with me, the fight professor, Stephen, and I had a moment of blanking on his last name for some reason. And there was a little pause there, but not nearly as long as the other <laughs> And Then I said, uh, Stephen, of course, Stephen Quadros. <laughs> I said, of course, you know. Um, but uh, so it's not that I've never had moments, but, uh, uh, but never one that was, uh, you know, that ended up being a complete panic. And it's funny, I've done a lot of fights with you and you have every piece of information in front of you, but how you find it, I'll never know because you have papers everywhere and you'll start to say something and immediately grab it out of a hundred papers and pull it right up and know it, which I don't know how you do it. I am usually overpapered at a, uh, at a fight. And of course that, you know, nowadays could all be, it's sometimes it's all on your computer, but um, you know, I don't, I don't, apparently I don't subscribe to the theory less is more when it comes to information at ringside. And I do believe that the more, information and the more material you have at your disposal, obviously, the better it is. Okay. Well, this is a really intriguing uh, question. And this is from Mark Rogers. I've only discovered Nicolino Loche, the Argentinian light welterweight, and I don't recall ever seeing his defensive style our defensive style, I should say, matching his own. I was wondering, what are your views and opinions on him specifically, but also on that style of fighting? He's a miracle worker. He is. Nicolino Loschi, uh, an Argentine fighter, as uh, was mentioned, was the junior welterweight champ for, uh, from, uh, for, four year, for several years. He fought from 1958 to 1976. Long career. And here's his, listen to his record, 117 wins, four losses, and 14 draws. That's staggering. Um, and in all that time, he only had 14 KO wins. So in, and his championship fights, of which there were about six, I believe, were all 15 rounds. And they all went 15 rounds, or almost all of them. And so he fought so many rounds. And here's the other interesting thing about him. He was a brilliant defensive fighter, as our, uh, our questioner pointed out. He could literally, he would put his hands down in front of him and push his head out and dare you to hit him. And, and, and mostly people never did. Uh, he was brilliant. And the part that's fascinating about that is he was not a dedicated trainer. He smoked, he drank, uh, he, 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 he fought so many times that he didn't train that much between fights. And Ray Arcel, the great trainer, one of the greatest trainers of all time, we trained Roberto Duran, said if, if Nicolino had been a more dedicated fighter, he might have been the greatest fighter that ever lived. And, and he, he was, as it, it happens, a terrific fighter, um, you know, in any case. And, and as I said, he had, uh, the, the, he, he had the world title for several years. He beat Antonio Cervantes, who's one of the great uh, junior uh, welterweights of all time. And he was, people talk about Willie Papp, and they talk about Floyd Mayweather and Pernell Whitaker uh, and great defensive fighters. This guy was right there with all of them. He could slip punches like nobody's business. And, uh, uh, I, I, I'm hoping that my little chat here will send you, after we're done uh, with the uh, <laughs> podcast, scurrying to YouTube to find a video of him. He's a fascinating guy, interesting character, and, um, uh, and, and a really terrific fighter. He uh, slips punches, as you say, like no one that I've seen currently. And it's talk about working without a net. When you're out there and your hands are down, if someone connects, you're toast. He would literally put his hands down and, uh, uh, and, and, and dare people to hit him. And, and most of the time they didn't. How about having 14 draws in your career? Can you imagine? How do you get to get judges to agree on anything? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was pretty nutty, but then 117 wins is pretty extraordinary. So he was, he was a defensive master uh, that kind of gets lost in the, you know, in the shuffle of boxing, but um Take a look at him. He's, he's pretty extraordinary. And our final question, who are you going to take in prime 
prime time, Manny or Duran? Yeah, we, of course, inevitably these days, the fantasy questions come up. A few weeks ago, I dealt with the uh, Floyd Mayweather, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard question about who would win there. And this is Pacquiao Duran. Um, this one takes a little explaining because, of course, both men fought at a number of weight divisions, Pacquiao eaten more than Duran even. So if you take the two weight classes they're most likely to meet at, the first is 135, where Duran had many, many fights. He was, of course, lightweight champion for some time. And that was where he really became, uh, you know, a great boxing figure. Manny Pacquiao only had a couple of fights at lightweight. He beat, uh, I believe, David Diaz for the uh, lightweight uh, championship, uh, but didn't have many fights at 135, so much fewer for him. Now, if you move up to welterweight, there were fewer fights at welterweight for Roberto Duran. I think he had overall maybe 10 or 11. Uh, Pacquiao had many, many more at, at, at 147. So it'd be one of those two weight classes that you would have these two men fight at. Now, the, the, the question specifies in their prime at their best. Now, Manny Pacquiao, to be, let, let's be clear, and, and I know people love Roberto Duran, and I think he's fantastic, and I covered his era with the, with the Four Kings, and I covered a lot of his other fights. I announced his fight with, Durant, with Iran Barkley. Um, I had much... Uh, to do uh, in chronicling Roberto Duran's career. A lot of times, a lot of times, Roberto Duran showed up not ready to give his best in a boxing ring. That's just a fact. Um, and you can't really make that statement so much about Manny Pacquiao. Uh, now, I know some people question whether he's ever used uh, performance-enhancing drugs. He's never no one's ever, uh, he's never tested positive and it, they remain rumors, but whatever the case, he's worked hard to be in shape and ready every single fight. So that's one thing that if they fought few, several times, I'd probably pick Pacquiao to win more than he lost against Duran, simply because my guess would be if they fought three times in their career, Pacquiao would be ready all three times. Duran might not. Uh, but if you take them in their absolute prime, both men are prepared, ready to fight. At 135, I would certainly pick Duran to win. And probably at 147, I would pick Duran to win. Uh, it would be a terrific fight. It would be great. Uh, but I would have to lean toward Duran. But again, if they fought in a series of three fights over a four-year period or something, like we often see trilogies, I would probably be more inclined to say Pacquiao was going to win a couple of those fights, uh, two out of the three, because Duran probably wouldn't be completely ready. Were you um, now get uh, now people will yell at me on Twitter. After uh, is now the time where I give out your home address and what time you want to be woken in the morning? <laughs> yeah, give them the home address, the home phone, my personal email, any possible way for people to torture me, and I'm sure they will, um, because I probably just made both fandoms unhappy right because i suggested duran might lose in the in the uh a series of fights and pacquiao would lo lose in an individual one so i congratulations to me i found a way to make everybody hate me at the same time so that was pretty good time well spent <laughs> yeah yeah it's a time exactly time well spent um want to mention that uh you know we've uh moved our own youtube channel uh, for those of you that watch the show on youtube uh and uh, so I want you to please subscribe when you, you watch it. Uh, and, uh, and of course, for all of you listening on uh, Google and iHeart and uh, Spotify and uh, Apple and every place, uh, we appreciate you listening. Uh, but if you are on YouTube, uh, make sure you subscribe uh, to our channel. Um, and uh, uh, next week on the show, we're going to have uh, a... a what I think is going to be a fun guesting. Teresa Tapia, the wife of Johnny Tapia, um, will be on board uh, with Paul Zanon, who is who co-wrote with her uh, The Ghost of Johnny Tapia, which uh, was uh, published by our friends at Hamilcar uh, Publications. 
And uh, I'm going to have both them on to talk about that book. And of course, the, uh, the long lasting uh, memory and legacy of the great Johnny Tapia, who was a terrific fighter. And, um, and despite his personal problems that affected himself, was a, a wonderful guy to, uh, to be around. So uh, we hope you enjoyed this show. And we hope we'll see you in our next episode. Um, my thanks to uh, Trip Mitchell, of course, as always, for doing a great job of co-hosting. And my thanks to Lee for producing. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time.